Whereas it'll be a long pause at the beginning of the uh, of, of your uh, video. Copy that. Okay. You guys are uh, doing a logical fallacy of manners. Manners? Yep. What do you mean? You, you have not introduced me to Mr. Hacking. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> that is a fallacy of manners. <laughs> That's My apology, Scott. <laughs> Greg, Gregory, sorry. This is Scott Cherry. Hello, Gregory. Pleased to meet you, sir. Scott lives in, uh, uh, he's a missionary here in Dearborn, Michigan. If, if you don't know the uh, Dearborn area, it's a very uh, high concentration of Muslims. And Scott works with uh, Muslims. Yeah, I know the area well. Nice to meet you, Scott. So nice to meet you too, calling you have there on you, um, there in Dearborn. Success to you. Thank you. And you too. Thank you, brother. Um, so you're going by, is Bible your uh, your nickname? Bible Hacking is my nickname. Um, <laughs> you can call me Greg. Okay. Well, I should say Bible Hacking is the name of my channel, which is streamed to. <clears throat> That's why I have that up as my name. I think me, who the heck Greg is, is significantly less important than the <laughs> fact that I happen to be talking about the Bible today. <laughs> Gregory is also into 3D printing, which is which is a plus. I am. So should I start us out here? <laughs> Has anybody come in yet? I haven't finished sending the message that they can come in. So okay. I I, I literally just hit send. And I'm gonna. Yep. People are coming in now. Yeah, they're participants. Right. All right. I hear birds. Who has birds? <laughs> I heard a dog earlier. Yeah, I, I got both. Okay, because I thought for sure that that was your dog, uh, Scott. Because it sounded my, like a sounded like a German Shepherd. That's my dog hunting birds. <laughs> Love. <it. laughs> Be very, very quiet. <laughs> Welcome to those who are coming in. We're going to give people a few minutes before we get started. All right, we got eight people in. Woohoo. I can't see you, whoever you are. <laughs> yeah. More coming in. Can you see them, Steve, other than like like, is your screen similar to ours? You can click on the participant tab. Where is that at? Or participant button, yeah. And attendees. Oh, there we are. There we are. Nate's in here. 
and Keith and Tarnisha and Wyop group and Keith. That's my buddy Keith. All right. <clears throat> oh, shoot. That wasn't right. Okay. Let me go. What time do we have? A few minutes, though? Uh, probably 7.04. All right. I think it's good. Chris, why it be so dark in your place? Because I got a bunch of uh, stuff that I need to sift through uh, in this room being stored. So I got a, uh, this room is closer to my router. So I get a better signal here. I was having some signal issues on Friday nights uh, a couple months back. So I moved up here and mm -hmm. I haven't taken the time to get all the, sift through all of this stuff and get rid of a bunch of stuff so that it looks like a normal room. Which is why I have this big thing behind me. <laughs> so gentlemen, we are also live on the Bible Hacking channel right now and viewers are starting to come in. So we are 100% go, go, go. Okay, I'm I ready to go when you are. Now. I just mean we're actually live. <laughs> <clears throat> if you have a siren, blow it now. All right. What do you say? Okay. Uh, well, welcome to those who um, uh, I've been here before. You probably noticed that the Zoom version is a little different. Um, if, if the last uh, meeting we had, we had a few issues. We ended up with someone was kind of a uh, troller was coming in and sharing images. So we had to make some changes. Um, the good side, the, the good news is that probably no one in here will be uh, naked this time around. That's a good thing. <laughs> um, the bad news is it's a little less interactive by default. So um, by default, the video is not on and people are muted. If you want, you can be, uh, if you want to be turned on and have your video turned on, um, just uh, you can send a, uh, a chat and that, that can happen. If you ever have a question, there's a raise hand button. Um, you can raise your hand. Um, what I'm going to be pre presenting for the next 15 minutes, you're welcome to, you know, we don't have like a debate where we have, uh, we're going to do something a little different tonight where there's exactly seven minutes for this person, exactly seven minutes for this, for this other person. So we're going to do something um, a little different and we're not really concerned about, as far as I'm concerned, I'll let everyone else speak for themselves um, about being interrupted or anything like that. So the more interactive it is, the better. And um as far as the version of Zoom, if, if any feedback you have uh, afterwards would be great. So if you do have a question, there's not only the chat, but there's a Q&A button you should see. And if you ask a question, this is kind of nice because the questions won't just scroll away like they did on the chat. Um, we'll have the opportunity to, um, uh, you know, a question or a comment that you want addressed. Okay, so as I said, we're gonna do something a little different. Uh, instead of uh, the last few times we've had a debate, um, you know, where two people are kind of going uh, against each other in a way, we're going to focus on something 
um, that really kind of, I think is more of a uniting thing where two people uh, can disagree about some underlying fact or, or, or belief that they have, um, but we really can't disagree about the ways that we justify that belief. So we're going to be talking about logical fallacies, how to, I, how to identify them. And this is actually um, something that's very important for not only theology, it affects uh, all aspects of our life, politics, and when you're going to work, we always have temptations to have uh, logical fallacies in the way that we um, interact with, you know, with the world, with reality. So a logical fallacy is a pattern of reasoning that's invalid um, because it's based on a flaw in its logical structure. I have this pictures from a website called Thou, uh, I'm sorry, yourlogicalfallacyis.com. And it gives you really good breakdown of different kind of, of common logical fallacies. Um, at its best, a logical fallacy is a mistake. Someone's just error, making an error. They have some belief that they want to justify and they make an error that something else is actually a justification for that belief. At its worst, it's an, it's an intentional deception. Typically though, it's a self-deception. Um, a fallacy is, is kind of a violence to the truth, right? Isaiah talks about how justice is turned back. We talked about uh, uh, nature of justice last week. Uh, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. Four, that four is, is a kind of a giving us the ground for how that happened because Truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. That's Isaiah 59, 14. And of course, John uh, uh, 8 tells us that it's the truth that shall set us free. So I think we'll have some fun looking at different logical fallacies that, that some of the, uh, that Scott and Gregory and uh, Chris are gonna show us and we can kind of evaluate what conditions that's a fallacy, whether it's a logical fallacy and hopefully they'll be controversial enough to um, uh, give us some uh, dis discussion on that. So a, a, a fallacy is actually an exploitation of a bias. Fallacies can, um, uh, a bias that we might have is, is, is actually, you know, we think of bias in a bad way. A bias can actually be a good thing. It's, it's a feature, it's not a bug. A bias is something that we have to um, kind of built in on how our brain takes shortcuts. Without bias, you'd never cross a bridge because you'd have to stop and do the research and figure out what is going to be necessary for you to cross that bridge. So we're designed to, to have bias towards certain things because our brain needs to take shortcuts in order to draw conclusions. Um, however, we're designed for a world that doesn't exist because of Satan, because of sin has entered the world. Biases now can work against us and they can, they can kind of bind us into delusions about patterns that don't don't exist. We have um, a kind of an actuarial view of the truth. So if you if you know an actuary is someone that maybe works at an insurance company, and they'll come to the conclusion that hey, we have a million people we want to insure against uh, a hurricane in a in a certain state, and this is the chances of a hurricane. It doesn't happen very often, so we're going to have to um, uh, charge this amount in order to uh, because it's kind of things that that don't happen very often. Um, so, so we kind of move about in our life with kind of an actuarial view of truth, our, our, our view about miracles, for example. Well, miracles don't typically happen, so I don't, I don't run around in, during my day looking for miracles to happen. However, we're, not, we're trying to step out of that and set aside our biases 
Um, and we want to look at specific claims, not what happens typically, but what happened in a certain circumstance. Um, so a fallacy is, is an attempt to justify a belief. The underlying belief may or may not be true. So what's kind of nice and what's kind of uniting about this is, is we, we might get some examples of fallacies here. Um, and you may, may agree or disagree with the underlying belief. We don't have to attack that because the belief is being held up by different justifications. And if it's a good belief, the justifications will be sound. If we knock down one of the justifications, that's something that the person holding the belief should, should, should appreciate. Um, so, it, you know, whenever we can maintain that attitude, that's a, it's a good thing. If we take a look at a, a quick example of, um, of how quickly we have biases. If I tell you something that's in Latin, um, but I, I attribute it to Adolf Hitler, you automatically have some kind of feelings, attitudes. Um, you, you probably think that thing is evil. Uh, you probably think it might not be true. I can switch it out the exact same thing. This time it's Candace Owens saying it. Oh, you have a different set of feelings. You might love her and you probably think that thing is true. Uh, you might not like her and you're sure that thing is just as false as if when Adolf Hitler says it. However, the actual uh, underlying belief isn't changing. All that's changing is who's saying it. Now I have this thing that uh, exact same thing, but Muhammad's saying it. So I'm, I'm take, my brain is taking a shortcut because of my bias, so I don't have to sit and evaluate that thing. Because what's typical in this pattern that I'm recognizing in myself um, would probably not be true if Muhammad said it. I probably won't support it if Muhammad said it. If Muhammad said it. So we want to we want to we want to uh, take a look at that pattern that we have, those biases that we have, and and develop not only in a debate because debates are are um, I mean are practically a cottage industry on YouTube, but you see two people who are both supporting their views with, with logical fallacies, you're not actually debating, you're not actually able to get anywhere. Um, same thing, if I, oh, now it's Gandhi saying, it, it's probably something I appreciate, it might be something that's good. So we can see this would be, this would bring us to the temptation of a um, of an of a ad hominem, where I say, well, that thing's not true because Adolf Hitler is a bad person, right? So I'm taking that bias and I'm turning it into a fallacy by, by doing that, or that thing's probably true because Gandhi said it. So it's not just a bias, the bias is natural, the bias is something everybody has. Um, however, that gives us the temptation to, to, to um, turn it into a fallacy. And we're most susceptible to fallacies for beliefs that we already hold. If we have a belief and we're holding it up with three fallacies, we actually run into a kind of a self-delusion because it could be three fallacies, but we never evaluate the fallacies independently. When we look at one fallacy, we say in the context, well, this belief must be true because it's held up by these other two. And we, and we kind of can get into, you can see how cults happen, how um, different religions can happen and people can base uh, their views on, um, on a, on a bias and, the, and the, the, the fallacy that comes out from that, that keeps them from getting closer to, to what is actually true. So when we, look at, um, when we look at ideas that we have, there's different ways that we can justify them. So different beliefs that we have. Uh, for example, we, there's some beliefs that we have that we justify axiomatically. Math is an example of that. Uh, 
uh, Descartes says the fact that I exist is an example of that. I'm not going to provide any proof that math exists. Math is just something that exists in a presuppositional way or an axiomatic way. Um, another example is authoritarian knowledge, something that we justify because some authority says it, right? So this can turn into a fallacy, but it doesn't have to be a fallacy. For example, the apostles were given authority. So authoritarian knowledge is actually faith. We believe what the apostles said for various reasons. Faith is an example of authoritarian knowledge. If I, I believe something about um, electricity, I don't actually have any personal experience with electrons. I've never seen an electron. Actually, I don't think anyone's, uh, or I'm pretty sure no one's ever seen an electron. Um, so I believe in electrons through some experience that seems to prove it out as well as uh, expert opinion, but I've none, have not done any of the research myself. A scientist told me that that's kind of a faith, an example of faith. Uh, another is a type of justification is experience. My wife loves me. I can prove that because of the experience I have. This is very subjective and can give us a high kind of psychological um, uh, certitude, but it's actually subjective and gives us a very low, what's called epistemological, right? That we know something, this is how do we know it? We have a very low epistemological value for something like this where an axiomatic might have a, have a high epistemological value. Uh, another example, is a pragmatic way. So I say I've been sober since accepting Christ. When I became a Christian, um, it's helped me uh, conquer my alcoholism. So it, it has a prag pragmatic justification. Again, this can give you a high psychological certitude, but a, a low uh, um, epistemological uh, certitude. And then on top of that, there's empirical and logical knowledge, which I think we're probably going to be focusing on a little bit in a few minutes. Uh, so if I were to take some of these, and if you know this song, I'm not going to sing it, but uh, he lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. And at the end of that, uh, end of the verse, you ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my, my heart, right? That song is an example of a uh, pragmatic or experiential justification for how I know Christ lives. If I change the words and I don't care about the, the, the rhythm of the song at all, you ask me how I know I lives, how I know he lives, I evaluated the historical claims of Christ and decided that Jesus must have been Lord, liar, or lunatic. I deduced he was not lying and was not a lunatic, right? So that's someone who took a combination of logical knowledge, perhaps some uh, um, uh, empiric, empirical knowledge, and that's a strong uh, uh, epistemological justification for that belief. However, if we don't know that and we just uh, have other uh, ways that we're justifying the belief that Jesus lives, um, then that, that justification wouldn't be available to us. Um, we'd only have experience and pragmatic reasons. So that's a reason why it's important to seek strong justifications. You ask me how I know he lives, I was blind, but now I see, right? That's a pragmatic example. Uh, you ask me how I know he lives, the innate sense of God, an overwhelming sense that I was created for a different world, right? That's an experiential um, justification. Uh, uh, C.S. Lewis uh, talks about that a little bit. Um, one more example. You ask me how I know he lives. My wife was a Christian. Otherwise, we couldn't get married. So here's an example of someone who actually has the same information, the same fact, but they don't have a good justification. The justification does not actually apply to the actual fact itself. 
right? So this is a person that doesn't actually have the knowledge that Christ lives. And I'm going to talk about that in a little bit, the difference between a fact and having knowledge, just having a belief and having knowledge. Um, the reason that's important is because as Christians, we might have the, the view that the Bible is the word of God, right? As Christians, we do have that view. And if I were to anchor that, uh, that idea poorly, I would, I would uh, here's a boat with an anchor and I have a Bible on it. And let's say, I believe the Bible is the word of God because the Bible says it's the word of God, right? So that might be a, a, a type of justification However, it's one that only permits the possibility that the Bible is, is, is the word of God. It doesn't um, prevent, it doesn't insist that the Bible is the word of God. So as a Christian, you might be happy with that, and you can have that belief and, and go on and actually have very strong faith based on this weak justification and go along your life just fine. However, if you zoom out a little bit, um, and excuse this little drawing that I found here. If you zoom out a little bit, you'll see another boat, and there's a little Muslim guy in there with his Quran, and he's sitting on, he's sitting with the exact same, he's anchored by the exact same justification. So we see the importance of the justification. You don't actually have an apologetic tool related to your justification, right? Because he's saying the Quran's the word of God for the exact same reason you're saying the Bible is the word of God. So it would be good to um, seek strong justifications, and then you don't put all the burden on your beliefs. If, you know, if I really have this psychological conviction that the Bible is the word of God, you put a lot of work on, your, on the belief when you can get stronger justifications that can do the heavy lifting for you. Um, and maybe in the, in the discussion, maybe in a later discussion, we could talk about what these are. Uh, justifications would be in, the, in that example. So um, getting to getting to what a fallacy does, right? So, so a justified true belief isn't just the underlying belief that you hold. You have this fact, right? The Bible is the word of God. Um, this, is, this is kind of a, in a, a, a epistemology in a nutshell. Not only what do we know, but how do we know what we know? And it's not until we've done this entire process that we have actual knowledge, right? You can have a fact. Um, a fact may be, uh, for example, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna believe the next tweet that I read, and the tweet says uh, um, it's raining in Moscow, right? You have that fact, but you don't have knowledge because you don't, you don't have. It may be true. You may have a true fact, but you don't have any justification for believing it. And so you don't actually have the knowledge that it's raining in Moscow. It may or may not be. But the fact that it's true doesn't change the fact that, um, uh, the, you know, the fact that it may or may not be true isn't, doesn't necessarily mean that you have knowledge. There's actually, uh, looking at the other side, there's lots of facts that are true that nobody knows. So they're not knowledge. So knowledge consists of a fact, a belief, right? And then it consists of the way that I justify the belief free of fallacies. If I only use fallacies to justify a belief, I'm just like I'm reading a tweet that, that I have no way to confirm, right? It's justified and it's true, right? And then I can put uh, intellectual commitment to it. That's when it becomes knowledge, the belief that that exists. It's a justified, true 
belief. It's not just a belief. It's not just something that's true that I have no way of interacting with. It's something that's actually justified. Um, and then that's where that's where faith comes in. Actually, you can't if you try to do all the hard work of, of faith applied to a fact that you don't have any way of justifying or that you, you're too uh, maybe intellectually lazy to try to justify, you do a lot of psychological work um, beefing up your your belief when you could actually, you know, have this forklift of, of strong justifications for something. Um, so that is where faith comes in. The belief, knowledge is the belief that something is true because it's justified. And faith is the belief in that and applying um, commitment to it. Okay, so that is um, a quick rundown of what I wanted to cover as far as justified true beliefs. What we're gonna be focusing on um, in, the, in the conversation is, is what are fallacies that don't provide justifications for beliefs and how do we how do I uh, how do we identify those? Um, before we go in, we're going to have three examples. Scott's going to give us a first one. He's going to cover a category error, and then Gregory Richardson's going to uh, cover a historical error, and then Chris Samuel is going to cover um, the example of a slippery slope. Um, before we do that, is there any questions, comments, anything that I uh, said too quickly or unclearly that you want me to uh, remember? We don't have any kind of a time constraint. And all you, if, if you want to ask a question, you just click the little, um, the little raise hand. They can also exit in the Q&A, right? Yeah, yeah, and you can ask it in the Q&A, which. I would add one detail. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so justified true beliefs is, is one uh, common uh, phraseology, but um, um, another philosopher uses warranted true beliefs. Yes. Have you heard that? I have. Alvin Plantinga prefers warranted true beliefs, and they don't mean exactly the same thing. They're similar, but not exactly the same. So there's a, there's a subtle nuance for him uh, that justifies yeah uh, a different word mm -hmm. yeah i have heard that i don't i have to admit i'm i'm a little lost on the distinction i couldn't tell you even though <laughs> oh also by the way if, if someone is interested in um in a more interactive uh you can it, let me know and i can make it so you if you want to ask a question yourself and turn your camera on um i can i can we can turn anybody's camera on that, that wants to. Um, otherwise, I'm going to assume there's no questions um, about what what I just covered. Oops, I put this on the screen that I'm sharing. So I'm going to turn it over to Scott, who is going to cover a category error. Okay, that's me. That's you. Hi, everyone. Uh, I might try to 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 share some uh, something onto the screen. Okay. Okay. You see that? I do. What is it, Steve? It is a hot dog and an ice cream, strawberry. It looks like. <laughs> sure. 
this will be my only visual aid for now. Um, so uh, I'm covering category errors or the, 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 the fallacy known as a, a category error and also called category mistake means the same thing. There is a fallacy related to comparing things and people commit this fallacy all the time. If you were in the last uh, Zoom meeting that we had, that discussion um, between uh, Mike Moses and the other gentleman, whose name I don't remember. Uh, at Matthew one, Jackson. Yes, at one point, you, you might recall hearing uh, Mike say, I think that's a category mistake. And uh, yeah, uh, it's one of the lesser known uh, fallacies. Now, if I compare this ice cream with this hot dog, consider if I say, I really like ice cream because it's cold and hot dogs have a bun. What, what, what's wrong with that statement or that, that couplet? I'll tell you. Well, um, it's true that ice cream is uh, usually cold and uh, hot dogs often have a bun. This, this one has a bun. But I'm comparing two different features of these two uh, food items in a way that is nonsensical, okay? Since I mentioned the ice cream first and I mentioned its coldness, then you would expect me to say something about the temperature of the hot dog. A hot dog, by the way, uh, doesn't have to be hot. It can be a cold hot dog. Um, but I didn't mention anything about the temperature of the hot dog. So I, I, I am um, trying to compare two disparate categories. Now, when you compare any two things, and you can compare any two things, but when you compare them, you have to compare them in a, in a sensical way. You have to compare them with respect to its qualities that they have in common, okay? And uh, so I'm looking outside my window here and I, I have this, this one tree and it's a pretty big tree. And then next to it, I have a swing, not, not uh, hanging from the tree. It's one of those sorts of swings that sits on the ground and it has a little uh, veranda over the top. And you can go out there and you can swing back and forth while you're reading your book. That's what I do. And I can say, um, there's these two things in my backyard. One is big, 
and the other one swings back and forth. In that case, I'm also committing a category error because I'm comparing two things that are not related to each other, two qualities of the two things. But if I say the tree is big, it's, it's, it's 30 feet tall, but the swing is small, it's only six feet tall. Well, that makes sense. I'm, I'm comparing the size of the two things, the height in particular. So if you're gonna compare any two things or even three things, you have to compare them in a sensical way um, related Nothing to, to say right now. Related to the qualities. Uh, let me give you a little bit of background on how, how category errors uh, maybe entered into our vocabulary. Um, there was a philosopher named Gilbert Ryle in uh, the early part of the 20th century. And in 1949, he wrote a book in which he challenged uh, the, the common dualism, mind-body dualism, that the, that the mind and the body are two separate things. And uh, he, he, that, that perhaps was popularized by Rene Descartes. Um, and even if it wasn't, uh, that was the prevailing view and, and maybe still is the prevailing view among um, average common people that the mind and the body are, uh, are two separate things. And Ryle challenged that view because he said there's a category error. Um, you can't compare the body and the mind as though they're two distinctive um, components of reality. He said rather mind is, uh, now he didn't argue that, that the mind is material, but he argued that the mind is, um, in, my, in my own way of, of explaining it, the, the mind is one with the body, that the mind, the mind, not that the mind is the brain per se, that's another kind of argument, but that the mind is so integrated metaphysically into the body that it, it's nonsensical to, to speak of them as though they're separate. I'll give one final example from my own personal experience. And, and uh, I, I believe Steve is personally familiar with this uh, too, because uh, he knows a young man named Ozer. Ozer is a Muslim from the University of Michigan Dearborn. Well, that's where I know him from. His family, goes back to Pakistan. And uh, we argue about a lot of different things, Christianity versus Islam. And so, yeah, uh, when, when, you, when you compare Christianity and Islam, you, you have to compare uh, things that are comparable, that 
can be compared in a sensical way. We got into um, a discussion about the Trinity, which is really, really common for Muslims and Christians to debate about. Not only Muslims and Christians, but uh, Muslims often raise objections to the Trinity that it, it doesn't make sense. And uh, in, in, the, in the objections that he was making to the Trinity, one of the things that he objected to was that it doesn't make sense that God can become a man. No, he said, it's absurd to believe that, that the almighty God could become a human being and defecate. That's, that's also a common part of how the Muslims uh, think. It's very, very uh, uh, this disturbing to them, to, to this idea that, that there, there was a Jesus and, and he could do, his, his body had all the same functions that our bodies have, and we call him God. Um, but that's a category error. Because if the discussion is about the Trinity, then any objections and any of its uh, strengths and weaknesses have to be within certain parameters that define the Trinity. There are other types of arguments uh, and issues related to the Trinity, but which are also outside of it. And the idea that God can become man is not a part of the Trinity, but it's, a, it's perhaps a subtle distinction. It's a, it's a subtle difference of category, okay? The Trinity is, is very simply the idea that God is one in his essence, and three in his persons. Doesn't say anything about his materiality, whether he can become a man and uh, other such things, whether, whether Jesus was both man and God. Um, so the objection that Ozer raised to the Trinity, i.e. that that God could not become a man is a, a category mistake. It's outside of the parameters of what the definition of the Trinity is. So it's irrelevant to the discussion of the Trinity whether God could become a man. Because you could have a Trinity and not have one of the persons that became a man. Um, that's that's an irrelevant objection, and and so it's incumbent upon the person defending the Trinity, in this case, myself, to say to him, um, "Well, you clearly object to the idea that God can become a man, but that's irrelevant to the matter of the Trinity." It's outside of the parameters. And so, yeah, if you're going to, let's go back to the first example, which you see. If you're going to compare two things, you have to compare um, 
like qualities. If you're going to compare ice cream to hot dogs, you have to compare how much you love the taste of one and how much you hate the taste of the other one. Or um, how one gives you brain freeze, but the other one doesn't. Okay? And uh, that's what a category error is. So you, 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 Ozay's, Ozay's, um error was based on like the, the fact that Jesus that wasn't um, subjected to kind of mind body issues. Is that, is that accurate? Uh, Ozer's error is uh, that uh, he was uh, really attacking the dual nature of, of Christ. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and also, whether God, a spiritual being, can become a material being. But the discussion about the Trinity is um, above and beyond both of those concerns. It's only, can a singular spiritual being have multiple persons that's the only question right i think that needs to be discussed and needs needs to be uh analyzed when talking about the trinity per se i know i don't i don't want to pick on um, specifically that conversation but I think that's a good example, and I've noticed how you, you have two two views on something, right? And you you try to support your view with something that is a category error or a fallacy of some kind. Um, and this it's 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 a there's a human nature, but it's it's part of fallen human nature. Um, the the fall the 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 justification used falls flat and is not does not follow does not, by implication, um, is not a good attack on your view of the Trinity. Um, and I think what happens there is you, you just drop it. And because you're, you're committed, you're attacking the idea, but you're unable to attack the justifications. So you drop the attack and then just forget the fact that the thing that you are holding as a justification is not a justification. And there's a kind of a dissonance there. And you, 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 you people will toggle back and forth. I have two bad justifications for a certain idea. I say something about this one that doesn't work. The person is able to kind of uh, identify the fallacy. I go to this one, the person's able to identify the fallacy, move on to the next person, start with the same fallacy. And that is, is an, I think that's an example. You're not interested in the truth. Uh, you're interested in, in that belief and you won't examine the justifications. So I think that's a great, I think that's a great example. Uh, Nate, Nate 2D2 says the Trinity doesn't entail the incarnation. That's my point. Yeah, right. I think that is a good, a good point. Any other thoughts, comments, questions? You can raise your hand. You can enter something in the chat. Let me know to turn your mic on, whatever you like. Oh, there's a question. 
Sorry, I'm learning how to use this. Okay, so um, Norman has a question. Norman, do you want to ask the question yourself? Um, and I can turn turn your mic on, or do you want us to just uh, give the question to Scott? Okay, Scott, here's the question. Um, how do you answer fallacies? And then, and um, Chris and, and Gregory can help with this as well. How do you answer fallacies to the audience without seemingly dodging the question? Uh, if someone if someone accuses me of dodging the question, um, sure, that's a legitimate charge because there is such a thing as dodging the question. People do that. I have to simply insist that no, I'm I'm not dodging the question. Um, I'm I'm trying to identify the fallacy that you're committing, and I don't I don't have to say it that way. I can say it in a different, maybe less offensive way. Uh, I could say, um, we, we need to clarify the two things we're comparing. We're comparing these two things, but if we're going to compare them um, in a reasonable way, we have to compare things. If we're, if, we're, if we're comparing their likenesses, then they have to be qualities uh, within the same category. And similarly, if, if we're making distinctions between them, yeah, we have to distinguish between qualities that are within the same category, like the category of size or temperature uh, or truth value or historicity or any other type of thing. By the way, I, I, I think I wanted to talk about categorization itself. I, I picked this one because I love to think about the way that we think and the way that we use reason. And um, human beings naturally put things in categories. We do it all the time. We cannot help doing it. We must do it. And everything in reality fits into some category or another, and, and sometimes fits into, well, almost always fits into multiple categories, depending on what it is you're looking at, what it is you're examining, okay? So a tree, you know, fits into the category of a tree and also into the category of a plant and also into the category of, of an outdoor object and also into the category of a living thing, but not the same category as mammals, okay? So if I'm gonna compare humans with trees, um, there are lots of categories that can't be compared logically, but I could compare the fact that um, a tree is alive in some way and a human is alive in some way, mm -hmm. but they're not identical. Yeah, then we right. can talk about what are the differences 
between the life force of, of, a, of a human being and the life force of a plant. Yeah. I think uh, yeah. Norman's question also, there's a, getting some echo here. Um, it's, it's also true. I think if someone has a, a something they're holding up as a justification that is a fallacy and you go into this examination of the fallacy, I think it's very tempting, and I think our culture is more and more tempted to do this, to be intellectually lazy and, and feel that that's dodging the question simply because of the emotional value of the fallacy. So the emotional value of this justification is so strong that, that I'm offended by your desire to attack it logically. I think that can happen. Yeah, well. absolutely. Um, okay, do we want to move on? Is there any other questions, thoughts? If, if I may, if I may yeah. just touch on that, the, the category classification a little bit. Um, I'm, I'm just hoping to shine a little extra light on it because I genuinely think the idea of recognizing um, fallacies and logical, like the, the thought fallacies is super important when dealing with the Bible and explaining the Bible, et cetera, because fallacies are very often the foundational place where the wrong starts. And then you build a bunch of wrong on top of it. I'll give you a super, super common to a lot of this audience example that you know we've, we've probably, I'll give you two of them. Uh, one is like a category type example where um, Old Testament, I believe it's Genesis 12, somewhere thereabouts, could be also Genesis 18, it's probably both, where Yahweh makes a covenant with Abram. And Yahweh says, and your descendants will be multi multiples, you know, a lot like the, uh, the grains of sand on the sea. And they will be like the stars in the heavens. Many times we read over that and we put both of them in the same category. The Hebrew there does not support that. The Hebrew says one is a category of quantity. One is a category of quality. The be like the stars is referring to something different than be multiple. It's not saying you're going to be a lot. There's another place where it does say you're going to be many like the stars. But in the original covenant with Abram, that's not what it said. It said you're going to be like the stars and you're going to be many like the oceans. If you miss that, you can miss a detail that the text is trying to show us there. That's one example. Example number two and this one will be extraordinarily well known to lots of people in this audience. Um, I believe it's in Revelation. Don't ask me to coin where. Um, you know, you'll see a phrase like, and his hair was um, like wool and white, white like wool. See, that must mean he's, well, he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the ancient of days. And he's clearly saying his hair was woolly, like, you know, a black dude's hair. But that's not what it's saying. It's not talking about the quality of the hair. It was talking about the color of the hair in terms of it's white like wool. Now, forget the part that it's apocalyptic literature, so you can't take that literally and try to paint a picture of what you know the person they're talking about looks like, because the very next thing it says is, and there's a sword coming out of his mouth. So are we looking for this dude with a piece of metal sticking out of his mouth? No, we're, we're clearly not. But if you miss the category, the category that the text is referring to, and in that case, it was, we're talking about the 
color of the hair, not the quality of the hair, you can end up way off in left field and screwing it up. And this is why, and this is just one example, because we, we touched on this one, we're going to touch on some others as well. This is why it's so important to get to the bottom of, listen, what are you, how are you coming to the conclusion that you've come to? And I'm saying all this to kind of add on to Norman Hardman's question, how do you address fallacies to the audience without seemingly dodging the question? The way I would do it, I would first correct the fallacy and then immediately correct the question. But you can't just go to the question and skip the fallacy because if you don't address the fallacy, the, the wrong thinking that started it, you're, 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 it's like building a foundation on sand. Well, yeah. Everything you're building can crumble because the underlying, the underpinning um, structure is not sound at all. I'm going to shut up now for a minute. No, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll throw one in there Gregory's also. And uh, I'm going to be even quicker than Gregory. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, there's, a, there's, a, um, there's a rise of a cult in urban communities called the Black Hebrew Israelites. They kind of prey on uh, Hispanics and African Americans and minorities. And uh, one of the things that they do is uh, there's a there's a cluster of scriptures um, that that are both on uh, that are on the subject of lament. Uh, it's like Lamentations, it's Jeremiah, it's Isaiah, but they they often they use the word black. And so what Hebrew Israelites do is they see black, 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 and they go see all of these Jews were black. It's like in Job, it's in Lamentations, and so they go see the Jews were black. And therefore, black people are the Jews. And, you know, as Gregory just pointed out, they build off this this uh, uh, foundation that that's built on the fallacy. What they ignore is the fact that black is is actually um, emblematic of the lamenting. It has something to do with the lamenting, not to do with the color of their skin. And uh, they're, they, they are they have a category error because they're focusing on uh, they're, they're building. Uh, they're picking the wrong category. It should be lamenting that you should be focused on, not the, the black and the black has nothing to do with the color of the skin. That's not even the subject. But yeah, category error. Yeah, both of those are good. It's interesting to have uh, exegetical uh, consequences as well. So who is uh, Chris? Are you going next? Uh, I can. I'm probably going to be uh, shorter than Gregory. <laughs> I don't remember who. Uh, have, have the floor, my friend. If I'm doing okay. it order. See, Greg, Greg is so kind. He's so kind. I think he was supposed to go next, but I'm going to go Oh, next. go ahead. No, Gregory, go ahead. I, I oh, forgot. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to be real short. I'm not going to be very long. Go ahead. So it, it's probably better that I go, uh, unless they want a, 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 a short-winded preacher at the end. So uh, first of all, I'm going to recommend a book for everybody. I got this book maybe like 15 years ago. Uh, I, I tore through it. I had this is my second copy because my first copy I wore out. All the pages fell out of it, so I had to buy a, a new copy of it. But um, uh, you know, I like to learn, and uh, one of the things I learned early on uh, while when getting involved in apologetics is that it's very important for you to understand how logic and reason works because when you don't, you can make mistakes, and that's how you get off um, get off into um, bad thinking. Uh, so yeah. That's kind of um, that. This is a book that was instrumental for me learning um, learning about uh, logic and fallacies. So uh, J.P. Morling, and uh, if you can see that, why uh, Deweese, J. Deweese. So yeah, I'm going to be talking about the slippery slope fallacy. Um, there's a lot of fallacies that I kind of encounter uh, um, in the various types of the various uh, religious and political discussions that I have. Um, slippery slope seems to be one that's um, that's that's making the rounds these days, and so I thought, okay, this that's a great one to talk about. So first thing I want to do is kind of give a quick uh, 
definition for of for the slippery slope. Excuse me, I gotta very quick. Um, slippery slope attempts to discredit a position by arguing that its acceptance will un undoubtedly lead to a, a sequence of events, one or more of which are um, undesirable. Though it may be the case that the sequence of events may actually happen, each transaction, uh, each transition occurring with some probability, this type of argument assumes that all transitions um, are inevitable, all the while providing no evidence in support of that. The fallacy plays on the fears of an audience and is um, related to a number of other fallacies, such as the appeal to fear, the false dilemma, and the argument from consequences. For example, we shouldn't allow people uh, uncontrolled access to internet. The next thing you know, uh, they will be frequently uh, frequenting pornographic sites, and soon enough, um, our entire moral fabric will disintegrate, and we will be reduced to animals. Um, as in, as is grainily uh, clear, no evidence is given other than the uh, unfounded conjecture that the internet access implies the disintegration of society's moral fabric. Moreover, the argument presupposes certain things about the conduct. So slippery slope. Um, here's a couple ways that I see slippery slope happen. Like, for instance, like he, they just talked about it. I know a lot of people who are, um, you know, a lot of Christians who are fearful of watching TV because it's kind of this slippery slope into, you know, you um, becoming more sinful. Um, there's this sphere of slippery slope when it comes to theology. If there's a theology that they, ha if you haven't heard before, if, it, if it's not familiar to you, uh, when you depart from uh, common tradition, um, often what you'll hear is, oh, you're becoming progressive. You know, there's this, you're, you're on that slippery, you're, you're going to become a progressive Christian. Uh, you're becoming a, a liberal Christian. Uh, they, they use this in politics. Oh, if you vote for this person here, it's inevitably going to end with this fatalistic, uh, negative, evil, bad idea. Um, one of the ways that um, that I see this uh, in particular, you know, I recently uh, read a book and, uh, you know, there's very controversial to talk about things like social justice. And uh, that's kind of a um, there's this uh, in the book that I read. It actually said, hey, my Christian friends who are advocating for uh, social justice biblically right now, they aren't actually um, in violation of scripture. But if they continue eventually that's what's going to happen. They're going to slide over into liberalism because they're acquiring these ideas from liberal people. So a uh, slippery slope, you know, when, when, um, when rather than discussing actual ideas uh, that are being espoused, you assume that there's this fatalistic end that uh, these I, that the ideas that, that that one person wants to discuss is going to lead to, and rather than discussing the ideas, you lean into this um, this idea that a person is going to end up in this uh, bad place. So slippery slope, quick and easy. That was a good one. You know the interesting thing about the slippery slope is it can be true, but still not be a justification, right? So. <clears throat> That's, and that's important. There's a lot of fallacies that are like informal fallacies that are, well, it's not as though um, that you're, you're not necessarily wrong. You're just not right in, in assuming it's, it's fatalistic uh, destiny. 
you know, you're, it, it's not, it's not, um, it's not necessary that it's going to end up there. But some, but you know, often sometimes they're right. You know, hey, this so, is going to end up pretty bad. So, Chris, is slippery slope always a fallacy? No, that's exactly what we were just. Uh, well, yeah, slippery slope is always a fallacy because slippery slope assumes fatalistically that uh, the end is inevitable. So slippery slope's always a fallacy. Um, is it? Well, it is, uh, it, is, it, is it a fallacy to say that? Oh, go a ahead. scenario. We could create a scenario in which it is inevitable. There's no. There's no way that it is not going to end. You know that way because it's entirely predictable. In that case, is it is it um, justified? It's not a it's not a fallacy then. You know what oh, makes okay. so, what, what so makes it a fallacy? What makes be, it a fallacy is that the end does not follow inevitably. That's what makes it a fallacy. Yeah, but what I'm just I'm getting a clarification from you. What I'm hearing from you is, uh, and Steve observed it too. Slippery slope uh, is is often a fallacy. But it might not be. If My very the very definition that I read said that sometimes you may end up in the place that's that's being warned about. But because it's not inevitable, because there's other scenarios that can play out, you can't you can't argue fatalistically that that's where you're going to end, rather than engaging the ideas. So if it's if it's guaranteed to end there, then it's not a slippery slope. But if you're just arg if you're if, if rather than engaging the ideas, you're just going to assert that it's going to end in a bad place. Then you, you're arguing a slippery slope. Oh, okay. Yeah. So in the chat, I think it's Norman says the wages of sin is death. Dot dot dot. Slippery slope. That's not a slippery slope. <laughs> the wages of sin literally is death. You know. <laughs> you know. So that's that's not a slippery slope at all. And that's a great example that that that. that proves that you can talk about something that's inevitable and, and not be uh, uh, making a slippery slope, making a slippery slope fallacy. But it's different when, when you say, oh, if you commit this particular sin, it's going to end. Like if you drink that alcohol, you're going to get a DUI. There's no guarantee you're going to get a DUI. Well, how about a person might not want you to drink that alcohol and argue, hey, you better not drink that alcohol or you're going to get a DUI. How about a probabilistic uh, type of of argument um, in which I say, you know, I wish you wouldn't do that because if you do that and it becomes a habit, there's a probability that it will lead to another habit after that. Doesn't it, isn't that like a Chinese philosopher or something? First your thoughts, they become your actions. Then your actions, they become your habits. Then your habits, they become your nature. And you're looking in the mirror at a total stranger. A rapper used it also, which is, I'm quoting the rapper. But uh, I believe it's a, I can't remember his name, but it was a Chinese philosopher who, who, who came up with that idea. But yeah, again, what makes a slippery slope slippery is it's fatalistic. Um, it, it, it's, it's assumption of fatalistic, of the fatalistic end. That's what makes it a slippery slope. Like in that book I read, there's assumption that this is going to end badly. <laughs> you know, this is how this is going to end. And it's like, okay, but you know, if they're not bad now, then that's a, you know, that's an assumption that's not guaranteed. It might end that way. I mean, listen, if history has anything to say about it, <laughs> it might very well end bad, you know. But uh, you can't simply shut down discussion because by saying that it's going to end that way. Right. That's true. Yeah. Um, even if it does, I think I think even if it's true, it's still a slippery slope, right? 
Um, I'm sorry. Even even if it's true, I, I think a slippery slope yeah. is an accusation that that like that the truth is here, and and but the slope, this dangerous slope is here, and you're getting mm. you're, the fact that you're getting closer to the slope with your ideas could mean you're getting right over the target of the truth, and it just happens to be next to this dangerous dangerous idea. So yeah. you know, can I use that example? Um, we had a debate a few years ago, and I debated a young Earth creationist, which I used to be for a long time. And um, after the debate, and then the young you got lady saved. Came, came, what was I? And then, and then you, you got, got saved. saved. <laughs> 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 a young lady came to me afterwards and, and said she assumed I was an atheist throughout most of the debate. And and it's and she reasoned because of this the slippery slope argument which happens in this, and there's truth to the underlying. So I'm I'm a young Earth creationist for a long time. I go through the process of questioning my own interpretation on something, and that can correlate with the process of questioning other things, which could lead to a, a, a liberal version of Christianity, which would could lead you away from inerrancy. Right, it could lead you down that road, but it has nothing to do with young earth creationism. So it's true that someone in that process could correlate to someone that's also sliding into over a cliff, you know. But she put me right over the cliff immediately. So I think that to me is a good example is that that is true. That process can put you on a slope towards something else that has nothing to do with whether it's true or not. I don't know if you think that's a good example. Oh, I think there's a question here. Oh, you're Cynthia. Muted. You're muted, Chris. Cynthia says, it's, is the thought that COVID vaccination will end bad in a slippery slope, right? That's that's a good question. <laughs> is that a good example? It is. I think that's, I think it is because it's like uh, at this point, what like, uh, millions of people have been vaccinated and the vast majority of them are, are, are moving on with their lives. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think it is a, um, it, it is a, a slippery slope to assume or to, to speak fatalistically like that, that it's going to end bad. It's not necessarily going to end bad. It could end bad. Especially, I'm going to let you go, Scott, especially if your assumption or assertion that it's going to end bad is not based on science. COVID vaccine is, is a science-based whatever tool, whether you believe in vaccines or not, it's very clearly based on science. It's not witchcraft, it's not the mark of the beast, it's not, you know, it's very clearly not those things. So if you are making an assertion outside of the realm of science, because your friend said so, your girlfriend said so, blah, 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 whatever, you just have a gut feeling of it, you're probably, leaning on this side of a slippery slope, I would agree with Chris. Scott, yeah. sorry, go ahead. So if the argument, let's use the same example. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of an exception to what, what just came out. Um, if the argument is about whether the, you know, mass vaccination of the population will end badly or end well if that's the if that's the question then it eliminates the slippery slopeness because then the argument is about 
what we predict will be the outcomes of it one way or the other based on observable facts and information. Yes, I think that's true. You could make, you could turn that into a slippery slope argument, right? You could say, um, if the government, uh, if I allow the government to, to, to give me a COVID vaccine, then they're gonna, they're gonna also put a chip in my arm, right? That's a slippery slope. Um, so yeah, that may be a fallacy, but I'm kind of hanging on to it. I'm not getting any vaccine, so sorry about that. I'm with you, Steve. <laughs> When they when they don't have legal immunity, I'll believe it's about science. But I don't want to distract the. Uh, when you, you I mean, everything's political. Everything's political in America these yeah, days. So yeah. it's not. Well, it, but yeah. again, that's that's a great illustration of how the slippery slope because it it could be both. Yeah, it could be right. people fatalistically assuming things, as well as it could actually be science and a, a good or a bad thing, whichever yeah. you know. You're, it, somebody's it could idea. be. It could be the flip side too. Like just to argue, play devil's advocate on my own argument here. It could be I just don't care. I just want to go out, so I'm getting the vaccine, and then I'm going to go out and indiscriminately. Um, so I don't care. Like I'm not doing any research on it. I just want to get the vaccine because I feel like taking a couple of trips. That's I'm trying just to go as to much Europe. A fallacy as the other side, you know, potentially could be. True. True. Good question. That was a good question. Um, one other uh, Numa is it? Let's see the full name in here. Um, Paris Numa Paris. Oh, okay. What's that like? Spirit Paris. Pierre. Pierre. Yes. Numa Pierre. Can slippery slope be a thing that affirms a positive outcome, like law of attraction? Okay, there's, uh, I know there's like, okay, slippery slope is an informal fallacy that's based on deductive reasoning. But there is, there is a way that I think that you can make a slippery slope, uh, make the slippery slope mistake with inductive reasoning, but I'm not qualified to tell you how. There. <laughs> Hopefully that helps. <laughs> Anybody else have a, want to take, can a slippery slope affirm a positive outcome? If, if it, it's really, it's a, if it's a fallacy, which it is, it, it can't really affirm any outcome, right? If you're actually employing a slippery slope. And if, if, if I may um, um, just, and I'm, I'm not, uh, uh, yeah, you can go ahead and exp expound the question, um, Numa Pierre. Um, but it's your question that I'm going to answer, going to comment on. So definitely, please expound the question. But if I, while Numa Pierre is expounding the question, um, keep in mind, and I'm I'm certain the audience knows this, but keep in mind that we are only touching on a few logical fallacies. There's literally tens of them. Um, for example, that um, um, you just said it, um, law of attraction. I could dump law of attraction into purely emotive appeals um, fallacy as well, which is a fallacy that's not based on fact. It's just based on emotion. You know, you, you've experienced something, it felt good. So, you know, that becomes your, you, 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 make, you make that your law now. Like that is a fallacy. I'm reading from, I have it open in front of me, D.A. Carson's um, logic, exegetical fallacies. Um, like he lists them, that's one of them. There's false statements fallacy. There is um, cavalier dismissal fallacy. Like we've only touched on one or two of them. 
So, you know, you don't have to fit everything into either slippery slope or, you know, category or historical that I'm about to talk about. The, the principle that we're trying to get at is understand if bad thinking, you should be able to, as a, as a student of the Bible, engaging with the rest of the world who might be Christians, who might be not Christians, you should be adept, skilled, well, you know, good, good at recognizing when the person you're speaking to started off on the wrong premise, is having a fallacy, is, is making a mistake. Whatever the mistake might be, you should be able to recognize it because if you don't address the mistake they're making, you're going to be hard pressed to get them to a proper hermeneutic, a proper interpretation, a proper exegesis of what we're talking about, that being the Bible. Numa, Pierre, I guess it's all yours, or Chris or Steve, it's all yeah. yours. To I think vote. Numa's going to uh, clarify his question. It's bound on his question. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you. And I believe you touched on it uh, um, already. It was just how with simply so bad thinking leads to this fatal outcome or this fatalist outcome. So I was thinking, well, can bad thinking also lead to one thinking that they're going down a slope that has a favorable outcome, which also needs to be checked also. So bad thinking leading to, oh, my life is gonna be great if I wish everything to the universe, then therefore I do X, Y, Z. And, um, but you, you touched on that, uh, that there's other fallacies that also account for bad thinking that appeals to the emotion and things of those sorts. But yeah, that was kind of where I was getting at. Can the bad thinking also lead to this ill view of a positive outcome being definite. Um, yeah. Are you a Christian, Numa Pierre? It, it doesn't make a difference how I'm going to answer the question. I'm just curious for my own context. Are you a Bible-believing Christian? Yes, I am. Awesome. So just as an example for you and the rest of the audience, I'll give you an example of where a slippery slope, and Chris, Scott, Steve, absolutely correct me and call utter nonsense if what I'm about to say is wrong, but a slippery slope that potentially could lead to a positive um, outcome, however, is likely based on a poor understanding and an actual fallacy would be the principle of, listen, I've tithed my whole life, you know, my entire life, I've given 10% to my pastor, you know, before everything. As a matter of fact, I go further, um, you know, the Malachi says give 10% and therefore, you know, the, you know, the, the, the worm is not going to come and eat me up, blah, 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 blah. So I've never gotten audited by the IRS. Therefore, <laughs> my giving 10% must be working. I would classify that as a slippery slope um, um, fallacy as well, even though it's leading to a positive outcome. But you are now tying your positive outcome up here. Hey, I've never gotten audited. It must be because, you know, I've been giving 10% rather than maybe it's because you're filing your taxes properly, or maybe it's because your number ain't up yet or whatever the other reasons might be. So yeah, it could go positive or negative. The, the fallacy isn't based on it expressly going, pos going negative. Thank you. I was waiting for Chris or Steve to say, Greg, you are completely off your rocker, but I'm, I'm pleased. Well, well you made another fallacy in it, but I wasn't going to say yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, there's definitely a, fa uh, I don't know if I would call it a slippery slope, but I didn't, uh, um, there's definitely a, a fallacy yeah. in thinking that you. That, that you, you never got audited because of the title. <laughs> but that's a real thing. Yeah. Like yeah, for no, real, I'm for sure real. Yeah. I, I've heard 
very well-intentioned Christian. I've heard well-intentioned Bible teachers and pastors preach that from a pulpit to an audience of thousands of people. So it's, it's, it's not far, far-fetched. I once heard a pastor say he wished he could line up nine tithers and, tithers and shoot them like he had a Uzi. That's a true story. It's on YouTube. Now, there's a slippery slope, right? Yeah, there's a couple of different slopes. The slope to prison. The, anyway. Right, the slope to prison. <laughs> Do we want to move on, Gregory? Sorry. It's Greg's I, turn. I did these in the wrong order. I apologize, but we'll, we'll see. No, I just kind of stepped out of turn. I saw, the, I saw the sheet that had me last, and I decided that I didn't want to go last, and that since I was short, that I would just kind of take cuts in front of Greg. <laughs> Well, Scott's battery might die, so uh, it's good that he went first. You're muted, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't hear any of that. Okay, Gregory, historical error, right? Yes, historical fallacies. Let's boogie. So um, I'm going to try to take a slightly different approach to explaining historical fallacies. I chose historical fallacies because I think they're especially interesting and I'm going to, excuse me, share screen. Hopefully this should work. Does that work? Are you guys seeing my screen? Are you seeing um, Acts chapter 17? See the screen, yep, Acts 17. Boom, so let's go. So historical fallacies. Historical fallacies are, are purposefully very broad category and everything I'm, I'm stating now, paraphrasing somewhat, all comes from D.A. Carson's book on um, exegetical fallacies or logical fallacies, I can't remember, but it's D.A. Carson and the book title has fallacies in it. Um, don't make me pull it up to get it right, but you can find it. Awesome book, small, moderately easy to read, but it covers every single one of these fallacies. Historical fallacies is broken up into four categories. So they're not just one thing, they're actually four things. And it's all tied around either overexpressing or underexpressing the history or the historicity of what you are speaking about. The reason I chose this as the fallacy out of the 10, 20, 30 fallacies that exist that you know, we talk about when studying the Bible is because I genuinely think um, this category of mistakes, bad thinking, is what poorly what negatively affects our ability to study the Bible today, nowadays, probably more than anything else. Um, that's my opinion. I don't have data to back that up. So, you know, you've called me wrong on that, but I think it's a pretty big deal. So historical fallacies, four things. First one, uncontrolled historical reconstruction. That is the over or under processing and reconstructing of the era that the, 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 the text um, refers to. This obviously happens with the Bible a lot because the Bible is historical. It's old. There is a temporal, a time distance between us today and the authorship and the original audience of the Bible. So we're always, if you're moderately, you know, valuing what the Bible says, you are always trying to keep track of the historical, the temporal, the time difference, um, so that you can take that into your understanding. So what, what the uncontrolled historical reconstruction does is you overcompensate for it, or you undercompensate for it. So you overcompensate for it by making up things that aren't even genuinely there, or you undercompensate for it, which is you ignore the whole historical uh, premise or context of it. A super simple one would be Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the thoughts I have about you, says the Lord, 
thoughts for good and not for evil. Yay, I'm going to pass every test. I'm going to be prosperous. I'm going to do awesome. That is not what that's talking about. It is an uncontrolled historical reconstruction or actually lack of construction to take that out of the context of who it was written for, Jews in exile in, I believe, Babylon explicitly telling them, hold on, because me, Yahweh, I have a plan for you guys still. You can't apply that blindly to today. It was written to that audience. So that's one example. Example number two, fallacies of causation. This is a huge one. That is, and the most common one would be what we call Latin post hoc propter hoc, which means because something happened after something else means the thing that happened after was caused by the thing that happened in the front. So if I drink too much and get in a car wreck means you know, the car wreck happened because I was drinking too much. That is not a causational fallacy. But if I wake up early one morning and stump my toe on the door, um, you can't make the assumption that, aha, waking up early in the morning leads one to stump the toe. Not because the one thing happened before the other means the two things are causationally tied together. And that's something we do in the, with, with biblical interpretation a lot, a super simple one. And I have examples in front of me. That's why I'm sharing the Bible, but that's not what I'm going to touch on right now. Super simple one. A lot of um, biblical scholars try to say that Gnosticism, you know, that false teaching um, that that Paul often spoke about, you know, in the, the his a lot of his um, pastoral, the Pauline epistles. Um, we try to say Christianity came out of. Um, Gnosticism, because we can find evidence of not full-blown Gnosticism, but some kind of Gnosticism in the, you know, Second Temple period before Paul was there. So because it existed first, that means Christianity came from it. That would be a causational fallacy. Fallacy number three in the historical category, fallacies of motivation. And that is where we say the effect is an intelligent act and the cause is the thought behind it. So it's similar to the fallacy of causation, but we're saying it's thoughtful, it's purposeful. So, you know, you could kind of lump those two together. And the last one, this is good for the scholars. And I, I saw Dee New in the group here earlier. I hope she's still here. I would look, you know, I'm jokingly, of course, saying she would do this, but this is for the smarter people who have backgrounds in psychology and, you know, advanced training and history, sociology, et cetera. It's called conceptual parallelomania which is where you draw parallels with your conceptual, your conceptions that you've learned in your deep study, et cetera, et cetera. But you are now applying them to the Bible in parallel and saying, you know, because, you know, you, medical science says blah, blah, blah. That means, you know, I can apply that medical science thing to the Bible. So, you know, medical science says, you know, we have telescopes and we can show the earth is round. We could prove that relatively easily. Just jump on a plane and fly to um, um, Australia from, you know, somewhere far away, somewhere in the in the Mideast. And you can you can you can actually see the curve like it's, it's, it's pretty obvious. It's, it's pretty undeniable. Um, and we therefore say so when the Bible is talking about the earth is flat and it's, you know, stood up on four pillars, that means means, you know, um, the Bible is completely full of nonsense because it doesn't understand that, you know, the earth is round. That is taking your conceptual scientific mindset and applying it to the Bible when the Bible was not trying to be a science book in that instance. So those are the four examples. I'll give, I got a couple of examples here. I'm going to give at least one, maybe two, and please chime in if you have a question or whatever. The first one I'm going to give is the um, causational fallacy. 
very, very well-known Acts 17. So Paul stood before Areopagus, and he's in Athens, and he speaks to the men of Athens, and he says, you know, a whole bunch of stuff. I have some of it highlighted. He's talking about to the unknown God because he saw this altar with an inscription on it, um, and he, he's, he's trying to convert these philosophers in the, the, the philo center of philosophy in Athens. And, you know, he, he, he's, he doesn't directly appeal to the Bible. He famously quotes, for in him we live and move and exist, as some of your own poets have said. And there are scholars, New Testament biblical scholars, I would suggest that they have a too low value or too low opinion of the Bible, but that's neither here nor there. There are scholars that say, Paul screwed up here. He failed in his missionary attempt to these scholars in um, Areopagus um, because they weren't all converted. And, you know, the, the, the philosophies of Athens re remain today and they kept writing them. So therefore, Paul failed. And as a response to his failure in Athens, the next stop that Paul takes is in Corinthians. He goes to Corinth. And we see in Corinth, he says, for I have decided to, this is Paul writing to the Corinthians, the next stop in his journey after Athens, for I have decided to be concerned about nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So th there are scholars that will say um, Paul here is regretful for the way he based his arguments on philosophy to the philosophers. Therefore, now in Corinth, he's basing his argument purely on scripture and on God. And, you know, you, you see things like God determines before the ages of our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood it. If they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You know, he's referencing Old Testament and making allusions directly to Old Testament scripture here. Um, he's referencing the Psalms. He's referencing a lot of different parts of Old Testament scripture, Isaiah, etc. And they're saying he changed his approach because he failed in Athens. That would be a fallacy of causation because Acts, which is where the story in Athens comes from, was written by, sorry, wrong direction. Acts was written by Luke, not Paul. So you can't make an assessment of Paul is here saying one thing and then Paul is saying another thing in Corinthians. When you take out the temporal time, time has passed between it. He's speaking to a different audience. Like he's speaking philosophically to the philosophers, but he's speaking um, pastorally to the people in a church in Corinth, because the first Corinthians was written to the church in Corinthians. You take that out of the equation and you say, hey, Paul obviously made a mistake. That is you making a historical fallacy that's called a fallacy of causation. Again, I'm going to pause here and I'm going to give one more example, maybe two, probably one. Um, but why is this important? It is not just so that we have a bunch of fancy words to say, you know, you're making a fallacy and cause it. That's not the point. The point is when you are speaking to your peers, be it Christian or non-Christian, you need to be able to recognize well that mm, this person is basing their thought process, whether good or bad. Like the example we gave about the tithing stuff. You know, that's not bad per se, but it is a wrong conclusion you're drawing. If someone is drawing a conclusion based on the wrong things, based on the Bible, it is our job to help set them on the right path so that they don't get 
lured in, and we, we see, see this in Colossians, you get lured into false teaching and, and heresy and a bunch of other things because you're not well-grounded and because you're not using proper thinking. So uh, let me see, I'll give you one more example. Here's a very nice one. Um, and this is what I would call um, the uncontrolled historical reconstruction fallacy, this right here. So we see this, and this actually came up in the bodega group this week, and I didn't get to comment on it, but I'm able to comment on it now. Work's been bananas, life, family, et cetera. All good, but you know, just hectic. So sometimes you can't engage on social media the way you'd like to. Um, this is why sometimes. But either way, then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to send men chosen from among them, Judas and Barabbas and Silas, et cetera, et cetera. And they sent this letter with them, and then you see the letter there below. And this, the whole church, especially that word church right there, is the word ecclesia. Now, if we do not do a historical reconstruction, if we do insufficient historical reconstruction, we might miss a part of, you're probably not going to miss the whole intent of the author. But Luke, remember, Luke was well learned. He was not an ignorant person, might have been, you know, medical science, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera, but he was known for his ability to write well and to document well. And he, he, he was a clear thinker. If we leave that part of the, 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 the background out of Acts, this seems like, you know, the church decided to send these men, men among them. And, you know, Ecclesia is the chosen ones or the set apart ones. And, you know, that's what the church is. And merrily we roll along. I want you to notice something different. Two things I'm going to show you. One is the, the context beforehand and starts up here. Both the apostles and the elders met together to deliberate about this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, and then Peter says a whole bunch of stuff. And then the whole group kept quiet so now the audience keeps quiet and listens to Barnabas and Paul while they explained all the miraculous signs. So you're, you're seeing a dynamic here of a bunch of people deliberating, and I'm purposely going to you know, signal where I'm headed with this, almost in a senatorial or Congress-like setting, think that they're deliberating, like congressmen deliberate with arguments back and forth to try to make a point, and then uh, one of the speakers, or in this guy, it's Paul and Barnabas, they get up and they deliberate some more to the audience and they make a statement. And when it's all said and done, then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to send men chosen from among them, et cetera, et cetera. This was the process of where they were determining who's going to bring this letter, who are we going to send? What I want you to see here and I'm, I'm not going to share another screen, but I have it here up on, you know what, let me just go ahead and share the screen to make my point super duper clear. Stop share. And this will be my last example. Ecclesia, boom. Um, Ecclesia, Greek, also has a meaning in secular Greek. It is not a biblical term for the church. It is actually a term for an assembly of citizens in a city-state. Its roots lie in the Homerific era, the meaning the meeting of the people. The Athenian ecclesia 
we're talking about a government structure which exists as the most detailed record more they spoke about it more than they did church was already functioning in draco's day in 621 um and what i want you to see and the ecclesia became um i'm not going to try to say that word with the body of male citizens 18 years and older who had final control over policy that's what ecclesia meant in this context and when Luke chose to use the Greek word ekklesia, Luke understood that because this was the language he was using. He per like if I got up today and said, and, you know, the Congress of the church met and we deliberated on this and this and this and this, everyone I'm speaking to in the U.S. of A. at least would understand, okay, this is a, a deliberational group of people that is deciding something together, not just in a vacuum. If we miss the historical reconstruction of that word ecclesia, we miss a part of the structure that the Bible is instructing us on in Acts 15. It's telling us churches should be a deliberative structure or there's, there's an aspect to churches where we can deliberate and make decisions together, not just ad hoc with one dude who is the superstar power guy, what he says goes, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That is opposite to the Bible. But we miss that entire context if we fall victim to uncontrolled historical reconstruction. So th those are my examples. I can give more. I have a couple others up here as well. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. And um, I think I was briefer than Chris. At least that's my personal opinion. Chris disagrees. I'm here for thoughts, questions, of course, you know, comments. Anyone want to say, Greg, you're completely cracked out of your wig. Um, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. So let's deliberate. I think the, the, the uh, um, example you gave about uh, Paul quoting, um, I don't know, I remember who he quoted, Epimenides? Paul I don't remember either, point. but it was, yeah. It was yeah. one of the, the yeah. poets of the day. It's, it's an interesting, I've never heard that reconstruction of how, but there's a, there's a, there's a view, um, and I think tonight is kind of, uh, the purpose of this is to kind of counter that view, that Christians don't use philosophy. Christians, Christianity and philosophy, um, you know, we don't need it. And that seems like that whole construction um, it would be motivated by that. Like Paul tried philosophy, it didn't work. So, you know, we need to You're stay spot on. You're spot on. You are, and there's books written on that. And I don't mean 21st century, 20th century books. There's books written on that in the, the 700s, 800s, 900s, 1500s. Like they have written books, scholars have written books on, I'm sure there's some in the 21st century too, around why Paul stopped using philosophy. And it is based on historical reconstruction fallacy. They have missed the boat and they're tying together things that are not together, should not be together, written by different authors um, with the time context in them to different audiences. But it sounds plausible. Like it sounds like, you know, it kind of makes sense. You know, Athens was before Corinth. So, you know, one, it, you know, it, 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 it gives you that fallacy of causation where this happened first, then he said this must be the two things um, don't make sense. So, yeah. Are, are you saying you agree that Paul did stop using philosophy? 
unequivocally not. I disagree okay. with it okay. vehemently. Paul used the philosophy because it was the suitable tool to use for right. the philosophical audience. And then later on, he used biblical um, principles yeah. because he said it can be all things to all men. So Athens and Corinth was pretty close in proximity uh, time-wise. Anyway, wasn't it? I mean, was it, it was. like a year or two apart? I actually, let me see if I can do this. Because Corinth is- that, is that nice is, little timeline on my wall? Yeah, it starts, at four, and, it starts at 404, uh, <laughs> 4004. <laughs> yeah, it's a timeline of all world history aligned to you know different things that are happening so for example we see yeah. that when paul was doing that there was stuff happening in i can't remember in india etc yeah. etc et so i i yeah. like to refer to that i actually got up in the middle of the debate to walk over there and check time wise they're temporary temporarily very close to each other it doesn't make a difference though it's you know i agree with you i agree with you that I, he I didn't but i was just i was thinking more in line of man why would they think that like he was like is he like it was like he walked across the street in the ancient world he was there one year and then a year or two later he was at the other place you know why would they think that there's um the, you know i guess i guess you, you you know you made the point the sequence he was at athens first and he went to Corinth. but i, I thought it was uh, I, the only reason i remember that is because uh at both places um there was there was um there was this greek a rejection uh, of the resurrection, you know, both of them take exception. And I, and I use that as an, as apologetic argument for um, when people try to conflate um, the resurrection, they try to argue that there were religions prior to Christianity were resurrection. I'm like, well, if there's a religion on earth, it's in Athens. <laughs> and Paul's in Athens talking about the resurrection and they talk about, tell us more. <laughs> I think most of those parallels have been debunked pretty, uh, yeah. pretty well there, there's not a lot of parallels between like egyptian mythology and, and christianity yeah. well uh the problem there they might be debunked in some communities they are alive and well in urban enclaves well, a lot of yeah. these urban cults are built on them and 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 so it's a it's a it's relevant to the group of people who are trying to reach those guys yeah. And again, that's how it's, it sticks out to me because, you know, I, I, I interact with some of those guys. Someone has a question. I, who is it? Norman. Norman? Norman wants to jump on and ask a question live. Yeah, I let him in already. Hey, thanks, guys. So I'm, I'm really enjoying this and I really enjoyed uh, this part that you shared as well, Gregory. So um, it's actually applicable to a book that I'm reading right now on um, OPP and MPP. Um, and basically, one of the things that it talks about, and this is, you know, not a slight to anybody, but kind of um, maybe looking at um, Luther and Calvin in that same light and um, their understanding of the perspective of um, what the works of the law is actually referring to. And so um, I guess I asked this question because um, it kind of seems inevitable unless you're just strictly providing quotes your entire talk right um to to avoid this type of fallacy this fallacy in some way because in some in some sense you're going to have to come to um add your own thinking as to bridge some of the gaps yeah. and so how do you avoid is it maybe just you get better at avoiding you know just bad bias uh, or just kind of becoming more conscious of yours? Or how do you guys, how are you guys working to eliminate more of that kind of bias or just um, issues like that? 
I think Greg's got something on that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, Gregory, sorry. And the reason I'm going to jump on this one is because it's something that I've been struggling with a lot. I'm genuinely looking at the attendees list to make sure, like I was praying, I hope some people are not here who I love very much, good brothers and sisters in the Lord, but they will probably come at my throat for what I'm about to say. So um, everyone pray for me after this meeting is done. And it's the following. I firmly believe that our 21st century Pentecostal, almost evangelical now is more of a bad term because it's become very political, but you know what I mean? The 21st century Western type church I am very inclined to believe that we are missing the boat on a lot of things that are very well founded in the history of the church and in, you know, the scripture explicitly, um, because we have started, we have accepted some biases as our own. So I am seeing that in Greg P.K. Richardson. And the way I am addressing it, Norman, and this is why I am, I jumped up to answer your question, is I am exposing myself to viewpoints and opinions that I normally would not. And I don't mean non-Christian ones. I mean, I am looking at commentators, scholars, church fathers that I normally would not look at to see what did they think? What did, you know, Cyril of Alexandria think? What did Athanasius think? Not that I want to call out some, you know, names of African church fathers, nothing to do with it, but I'm not familiar with them. My whole context of knowing Christianity and the Bible is what I heard as a boy growing up in a Pentecostal environment. So I'll give you a super, super simple example. Most of us here on this call, so again, to, to answer your question directly before I give my example, Norman, it is... How do you address this? By exposing yourself to different viewpoints on purpose. Uncomfortable ones that make you say, but this, this don't feel right. Those are the ones that God is probably saying, yeah, shut up and listen for a minute, bro, because you ain't know everything quite yet. And that's how God speaks to me. So that's why I said it that way. But anyway, a simple example. Most of us here that grew up in a church environment, I can speak for myself, grew up with a uh, uh, an environment where um, you, the church service looks like you come to church, you sing some songs, you get a message that near the end of the message, there's a part where we try to scare the Jesus out of you. And if you don't come up here right now and, you know, give your life to the Lord and repeat this prayer after me, you know, blah, blah, blah. Oh my God. You know, you're going to go to hell and damnation. And there's, it's a very emotive part in the end. And we, we monitor. And nowadays in the Western church, we sit there, we have guys with counters, how many people stuck their hand up. And that's how we're tracking whether we're doing a good job of evangelism or not. And none of that stuff is explicit, implicitly bad, but I will say none of that existed in the apostles' churches. There were no altar calls. Like we can point to historically, I think it was in 1790 something when the first dude, and I don't have his name in front of me, but I have it in the history book that I'm reading right here, gave the first altar call and it worked and people flooded up and there were benches where you could sit and you could engage with the pastor. Like that started happening around the time of Christopher Columbus. Well, Charles Finney. Who is it? Charles Finney. No, it's a less common name than him, but it's around that same era. It's around the same era. Yes, Charles okay. Finney was the uh, second Great Awakening. 
Exactly. Okay. Correct. Yeah. So it was before Finney. But yeah. I'm saying this never happened in the Apostle Paul's church. How did the Apostle Paul and the Apostles have church? As often as you meet, do this in remembrance of me. What was it that Jesus said to do as often as you meet in remembrance of me? The whole service was around a communion. Like that's what they did. So most uh, services nowadays are not around a communion. I'm not saying every evangelical church needs to bring in a lamb and butcher it and cook it and roast it and eat it every Sunday. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying there are huge gaps between what we assume is, well, this is normal church, and what two or three generations before us assumed was normal church. And if we don't familiarize ourselves with some of those things that might be a little uncomfortable, we might miss some context. We might miss some nuance, some depth. And that was the other example I, have, I had on Psalms 3, but I'm not going to get into it. I hope yeah, my yeah. very long-winded answer helped, Norman. I'm going to shut up now. <laughs> Oh, sorry for, for Gregory, I interrupted you. Um, I, I kind of want to uh, uh, expound on that same idea. I think C.S. Lewis talks about that. It, like, it's very important to get out of the noise of your own village, right? And you need to understand people from different contexts and how they understand things because of the, the presuppositions and baggage that your own culture has. So I think that's a very good point, Gregory. There's there's a danger in um, in so at that culture you're looking at had problems, had biases, and so there's a danger of romanticizing the other culture, um, and and kind of um, you know castigating the one you're in because you, you go to the other culture and they've got a different set of issues, and the church had different issues that they were trying to tackle. Francis Safer talked about how the the, the difference between forms and function of the church, right? The church has to always have the same functions, but the forms change as the culture changes. What the music, how fast the music is, whether they have a building or whether meet, they meet in a crawl space talking with their hands because they can't, they don't want to get caught, right? So the, 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 the forms change, but the functions um, need to stay the same. And we need to look at our culture and be able to say, is this a, is this a functional change? Or is this a form change and how is it different from other? So I think I kind of reiterated the same kind of idea. I do think there's a danger in um, uh, romanticizing other times. I, I, uh, I for a long time as a, as a Christian, I only read old books. So if it hasn't been around for 500 years, I assumed it's, it's not gonna be as good as the ones that did stick around for 500 years. And I regret that because I put myself at a disadvantage at not really kind of understanding uh, current trends and things like that in my own culture and and what I learned about St. Augustine didn't necessarily help me with those things. <laughs> and my premise, I agree with Steve 100%. My premise holds. My premise is yeah. whatever it is that your little echo chamber is, in Steve's case it was books older than 500 years. Yeah. It was, there came a time when Steve had to say, I got to stop reading books from 500 years yeah, yeah. and read some newer ones. In my case, I only read newer books, the Left Behind <laughs> series, This Present Darkness, like for real, like that's how I grew up. That's some all of the I was best scholarship in modern history. Point blank period. I'd never heard of some older dude, like who? There was a guy in Africa. There was a North African black dude that thought up the Trinity. 
Yeah, I don't know. I thought Trinity was, you know, in the Bible. I thought the word was in the Bible, like straight up, straight up and down. And FYI, just to clarify that I'm not completely crazy, July 8th, 1741 in Endenfield, Connecticut. The pastor's name was Jonathan Edwards. That's the guy that did the first altar call and the fire. Evangelicalism. (laughs) That's exactly what it's tied to. Yeah, I want to jump in and share some too. Uh, amen to both uh, Stephen and uh, Gregory. Um, yeah, I'm like me and Steve have this wonderful relationship where like it's love hate. It's genuine love hate. I genuinely love Steve. I go over his house. He he'll feed me. He'll give me coffee. We'll talk about um, all type of crazy stuff. Sometimes we talk about topics that we're passionate about. And it get it gets like oh my god Steve driving me crazy and Steve he's the same way I'm driving Steve crazy and, and Steve's like Chris you, that's a fallacy <laughs> that's you're the problem you're 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 arguing from a fallacy so yeah um, but the point of that is like I make it my business me and Steve don't don't share we share uh, some central truths I believe that Jesus the deity of Jesus Christ I believe in the Trinity I believe in the um, authority of scripture you know so we share like these essential ideas when we get off we see things different soteriologically uh, we see things different with uh, social justice so yeah I'm like I I'm friends with Steve I'm friends with a bunch Scott cherry I'm friends with a bunch of people who I disagree with and I'm intentional about that because I recognize that if, if every time a person disagrees with me, I cut them off and I don't associate with those people, then I'm likely to, to miss out on some of the best critiques of my own ideas, some of the best critiques of my own conclusions and own deductions. It's like, hey, you know, if I'm only hanging around people who agree with me. So I make it my business to have thick skin uh, and, to, and to have other things that we have in common so that we have a genuine bond of friendship that that helps us to stand the test of us arguing and disagreeing on on those things that we disagree on. Secondly, I read widely, right? I just read, like I knew, I've heard Vudi Bachman speak multiple times on the topic of social social justice. and, uh, And I know, generally speaking, what he believes. But when he when his book came out, what I thought was, here's, he's credible, he's a scholar, his degree is in, he has a degree in sociology, I knew that from listening to his lectures, so I felt like, okay, now I have in print some, some, uh, a, a narrative and some ideas that I can kind of, I can critique my own views against, so I read his book from cover to cover with the intent of, I, I kind of suspected that I wasn't going to agree going into it, you know, but it was like, hey, at the end of the day, at least I'm getting some clear, definitive ideas about why he finds these things problematic. I've read Thomas Sowell uh, disparities and uh, what's another guy who I disagree with. You know, so for me, it's like I don't want to have weak ideas that cannot withstand critical challenges. So I make it my business to to read widely, read people who I know I disagree with. I make it my business to maintain friendships with people. And um, and, and when I say maintain a friendship, again, we not always talk about things we disagree in. Sometimes we talk about things we agree on. Sometimes we just might go for a casual walk and talk about life, you know. But yeah, at, at the end of the day, you know, I like to keep people who I disagree with close by and have intimate relationships with them and uh, and have the privilege of being able to bounce my ideas off of them and, and get uh, critical feedback. And, and and these are like Steve's Steve's a smart guy. Like he's not some dull thinker. You know, he's a he's a, he's a well-read 
very intelligent guy. So and those are the type of people that I want to have as friends. You know, I don't want a person who just appears their favorite teachers. I want a person who's thinking for himself and, and working his way through ideas. So that would be my um, recommendation. Uh, I think we live in a microwave society where we want everybody, we want our answers quickly and we want resolution quickly. So when we come to a point with us and our friends disagree, we think, oh, they need to just, you know, see things the way I see it, which is truth and bow down to it. It's like, no, you know, I joke with Steve sometimes like 20 years from now, you're going to change your view of this, you know, and he goes, or you got to change your view, you know, so that's, that, that's it. You know, having those friendships, reading widely, having patience and uh, realistic expectations that, hey, we may never change our views. We may not figure it out till we get to heaven or to heaven comes to earth and we, re we get resurrected and we go, oh man, I was an idiot. <laughs> I was an idiot there, I was an idiot there, I was an idiot there. I got that one right. You know, one out of five, that's not bad. <laughs> See, that's my that's my recommendation. Very good. I'll, I'm going to put your comment in the love column. So I appreciate that. And I enjoy our conversations as well. <laughs> I haven't had anything fall in the hate column in, in quite a while. <laughs> But you know how we get like when we were talking yeah, about yeah. the uh, yeah, yeah the the, the oh, whole yeah. truncated. It's like it's like and part of it is like 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 one Steve kept asking me a question about First Corinthians fifteen. What is a first order? And I'm like I'm struggling to figure that out because I'm my brain works. I'm big picture guy, I'm a narrative guy, and so my brain is trying to figure out what is Steve asking of me. And then sometimes I'm, I make I got a bad habit. I assume motive. I'm assuming that he asks certain questions for a reason. And so like I realized at one point, like, hey, when Steve asked me questions for your text, I need to slow down. I need to wait before I respond because often we it's, it, we get off on a whole nother conversation because <laughs> I'll, I'll respond in a way where I missed this point, but it brought up another problem. And now we're off in a whole nother direction talking about a whole nother topic. So yeah, um, yeah, I, I love Steve, you know, love, love Steve, love all my friends and uh, you know, very few of them. There's a there's a handful of them out there that I maintain relationships with, where I really think to myself, like, man, this is tough. <laughs> but for the most part, these people I have genuine friendships with. <laughs> well, guys, I appreciate it. That was um, that was a lot of fun. Is there any other thoughts, questions? I I give a, a closing comment. comment. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, yeah. Echoing what I just said, like have patience, man. Have some patience when you get into these conversations with people. You know, the Bible wisdom is to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to wrath. That's the exact opposite of what our culture, our culture is. Let me if, if you a lot of people listen just so they can try to look sound, look like they wise while they're waiting for their time to talk. Yeah. You know, so learn to be patient, learn to listen. You know, sometimes you can slow down and, and, and process information, recognize that Rome wasn't built in a day, that you're not likely to resolve to solve uh, some of the world's greatest conundrums that people have, brilliant men have been wrestling with for generations. You're probably not going to solve that like it, it, in your, you might not even solve it in your lifetime, if ever. So you know, have some patience, learn to love people and, 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 and understand the difference between and the importance of an idea and, and the person who you're engaging, yeah. you know, because we're trying to win people, not arguments. Yeah, very true. Gregory, what was the name of the uh, the historical error of injecting from your own time? Parallel. 
Conceptual parallelomania. It's not just injecting from your own time. It's injecting from your conceptual knowledge. So what you've studied, what you're good at. It would be you or I, Steve, importing computer tech on everything in the Bible. Yes. And it's the best named error. Yes. <laughs> of tonight. Like of his whole, of D.A. Carson's whole book. By far the best named error. Um, I, I wanted to just um, second what Chris said. Uh, I speak much more briefly than Chris does. So I'm going to be able to say this with more brevity. Um, Philippians, uh, uh, where Chris spoke about, you know, you have to sometimes go against the cultural norms and what the typical thing is for today. I'll give you another one of those that God has been hitting me with this over the head, like a, like a sledgehammer for the last couple of months. Uh, Philippians 2, 3. Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, and this is, the, this is the crux right here. Each of you should, in humility, be moved to treat one another as more freaking important than yourself. Yes, that was paraphrased by Greg. I repeat, <laughs> each of you should, in humility, be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. So the next time you want to argue with a brother because you have the, the freedom of speech, Remember our discussion, Steve, or, you know, you, 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 I have the right to say this or to do this or to believe this. And you can't tell me anything about it. Remember Philippians two, three said, sometimes often you're going to have to consider others more important than you. So even though you do have the right, and even though you are free to say, or believe or do, or whatever, sometimes just sometimes remember the Bible said, consider others more important. And that's, that was like, that's directly to me. Mm -hmm. Very good. That's a good, uh, a good thought to uh, close on. Especially um, since it was shorter than Chris said it. Yeah, it was. <laughs> so um, I think we can, we can probably wrap it up now. I, I, be on the lookout for next thing. Well, this was a little uh, work together kind of thing versus a debate. So next time we'll, uh, we'll go back to, uh, to iron against iron and uh and, and get a debate going so look for a um look for a notification on that. If, uh, we, we we got in our back pocket calvinism versus arminianism it's never yeah. hard to find two people to argue that <laughs> <laughs> just not me <laughs> or, or or young earth and old earth and then um uh, 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 one, one of the adjunct, I think, professors over at Trinity offered to debate uh, eternal conscious torment versus annihilationism. He's an annihilationist. So okay. if we're interested in hearing some some details on that, we can. Uh, and he said that he may be able to supply an opponent for himself also. So, yeah, yeah I was a little leery about the uh, bring your own opponent thing, but. Well, no. He, if you go on YouTube, he's got he's got he's got a bunch of opponents that he debates, and they're normally scholars. They're normally uh you know scholars okay, or that's good. Yeah, that's so, good. Yeah. I felt like hey, two free scholars debating. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, that sounds like a, a win to me. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, I appreciate everyone coming. I, uh, I any feedback you have about whether this version of Zoom is uh, better or worse. Uh, please don't hesitate to uh, reach out to me and let me know what you think about it. Okay. Thanks everyone. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. See you. Love you guys.